Let's now open our copies of God's Word to John, the first chapter. On Sunday morning, since late October, we have been preaching through Luke's Gospel. Last week came to the birth narrative. But in the Christmas season, I love to spend time in this first chapter of John's Gospel. Let's pray together. Our Father, before we read your inerrant word, we ask that you will give to us hearts that are desirous of submission to its authority, that whatever you say in your word, because it is true, because it is your word, we as your people will desire to hear and believe, trust, and obey. And as we prayed earlier, so we pray again that you would use this Christmas Eve service to accelerate your people in our growth and grace. But Father, indeed, there may be those here this evening who are strangers to grace. They do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who became man, who was born in Bethlehem long ago, who went to a cross to redeem sinners. And we ask that your Spirit will so work that they will come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, we pray for the world. We pray for the church around the world. And we ask that you will give to your church the desire to proclaim the unsearchable riches of Christ, give to your church clear witness, and we pray for the powerful work of your Holy Spirit to bless it, to the upbuilding of the church, the conversion of the lost, and the salvation of sinners. And since that is our call until Jesus comes again, help us never to become weary in well-doing, but to depend upon you, that you are accomplishing and achieving your purpose as your word goes forth. For this you have ordained, the preaching of the cross, until our resurrected and ascended Lord comes again to take us unto himself. Hear our prayer, for we ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. John's Gospel, even though we focus upon verses 1 and 14 primarily in our brief meditation this evening, I would like to read the first 18 verses. John chapter 1, beginning with verse 1, this is the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, 
but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. People of God, when we gather together on Christmas Eve, I rather think of this as our quieter service during this season of the year. We've had our wonderful Sunday morning services and our lessons and carols, but this is a time in which we gather with our families, and before you start putting together bicycles and putting out the last presents when the children are in bed, we have a quiet time to reflect upon the theological mystery of the Incarnation. And undoubtedly you are here, most of you, because you want to worship the living and true God. And you are here because you know him. And you are here because you were saved by grace. You are here because you want the festivities of your family to be filled with a sense of reverence and awe. So that no matter what the excitement may be, you never forget the purpose for which we celebrate Christmas. And as we come to this text this evening, this wonderful text upon which one could preach an infinite number of sermons and never begin to get to the bottom, we're going to spend a few moments. This takes us way down deep into the doctrine of the Trinity and into the nature of God and into the nature of your salvation. Christmas confronts us with the incomprehensibility of God, the greatness of our God, but also with the tenderness and affection the transcendent God has shown by coming into this world to redeem sinners like you and like me. So first, notice with me that Jesus is the eternal Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now this is reminiscent of Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Beginning here, in the beginning was the Word, means before God created And the verb was indicates continuous past existence. And so the Word, who is the eternal Son of God, never had a beginning. He is the Word. He is the Logos, eternal. He is the living God. Never a time when he was not. He is God himself, the same in essence. And yet notice that he is distinguished from the Father. The Word is not some abstract idea He is a person, the eternal Son of the Father, distinct in person, the same in essence. He is the creator. Notice verse 3. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. He is the creator. Notice verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. And he is the light that came into the world. Verse 4, in him was the life, and the light was the light of men. Just as God spoke in the beginning, there was light, so he has always been the light that comes into the world. He is the light of the new dawn, of the new creation. 
the day spring from on high. And then in verse 1, there is this bald-faced statement that the Word is God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and God was the Word, actually literally translated. As Paul the Apostle tells us in the book of Colossians chapter 1, in verses 16 and 17, For by Him, that's Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Now that's who the Word has always been and who He is. He is, He was, the eternal God. The amazing thing about this text, don't you agree? The amazing thing about this text, don't you see, is that it also teaches us that the Word became flesh, that God became man. Verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory Glory as of the only begotten of the Father, or the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So think upon it on this Christmas Eve, will you? Two natures, infinitely distinct. God the transcendent, God the creator, and man the creature. But now the eternal was made in time. The infinite became finite. The immortal became mortal, while continuing eternal, infinite, immortal. Must we not bow the knee, at least within our hearts, even at this moment, and admire the divine wisdom in this? He did not cease to be, when he came into this world, all that he has always been, and yet he became what he was not. And in Christ... God, the creator, the infinite, eternal, unchangeable God, in the incarnation of our Lord, in Jesus coming into this world and taking upon himself flesh and blood, assuming our nature, in Christ, God is visible to us. Isn't that what verse 14 teaches? The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now the term that is used for looking upon or beholding in verse 14 is not simply a mental image. It is a concrete, lingering look. That's what the Greek term always means in almost every context. A concrete, lingering look. What the text is telling us is that Jesus, God in the flesh, was seen by eyewitnesses that God really came down, 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 infinitely down. That he was seen, that he really became flesh and blood. So that what we have heard from Luke chapter 2, read by Elder Montgomery a few moments ago, is not simply a nice story. It is not a myth. It is not a sentimentalized view of life to make us happy in the midst of the sorrows of this world and then after Christmas to fade away. No, no. Paul says in 1 Timothy 3.16 
The same Saul of Tarsus that was converted on the Damascus road that saw the risen Christ, Saul, Paul says, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. He was manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. And there, in heaven, he remains our resurrected, glorified Savior, our mediator in two natures and one person forever. Two natures, God and man, one, perf- one person in perfect unity, as the ancient Chalcedonian Creed says, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably. The old Puritan John Owen says it so beautifully. Listen to these words. For if the divine and human nature of Christ do not constitute one individual person, all that he did for for us was only as a man, which would have been altogether insufficient for the salvation of the church, nor had God redeemed it with his own blood. And that's why the great creeds and confessions of the church that we recite and make use of at all times of the year are so careful in their statements about the real incarnation of the Son of God. Now, children who are here tonight, I realize that what we're talking about has a great deal of depth. It is so deep that the deepest thinker can think upon it and never get to the bottom, but it is also something that you as children can grasp. When you have a little baby come into your home and you hold that baby, That baby, of course, was not the eternal Son of God, but you can touch that baby. When God came into this world and you take that little baby and you hold that baby, God came that near. God became a baby. That's what we're teaching, children. We're teaching the incarnation of our Lord. Incarnation may be a big word, but it's a word that you children need to have in your vocabulary. When your mother makes chili con carne, it's chili with meat. It's chili with flesh, and that's what incarnation means. God so loved you, little children, that he would not leave you in sin, but he came into this world, he became a baby, in order that he might grow up and redeem you from your sins. That's what Christmas is all about. Now let's ask the question, why? Why? Why this great truth of the incarnation? Well, because Christianity is not man's groping after God, not probing for God. Christianity is sheer revelation. How man has tried to seek after God on his own, not the true and living God, but his own idea of God, by speculation, basically by philosophy. But you cannot search out the Almighty. By mysticism and techniques that produce all kinds of emotional and ecstatic experiences of the soul, but you can't know God that way. As a matter of fact, I remember after a Lessons and Carols, maybe last year or the year before, as I was on the way home and listening to the radio, there was someone who was saying, at Christmas time, the way you find God is by looking within for the wonder. No, you do not. You do not look within. You do not find it within You look outside of yourself to what is revealed in sacred scripture. 
Man tries to attain to his idea of God by moralism. Just live up to a standard and we can get to God, they say. Well, you can't live up to God's standard. And if you think that you can, you're living a lifelong lie. It simply will not work. Man has tried all of these things and all of them will fail. Because as Augustine says, God alone is a fit witness to himself. Now, there is much that can be said about why God became man, but let me give you the bottom line answer. Let me give you the basics. Why the incarnation? Why did the second person of the Trinity become man? Why did he assume human nature? The reason is that we broke the law of God, and man must obey that law that we broke or we would be lost. But there is no man good enough. And someone must pay the penalty of that broken law, And there was none of us that could do that, and only God could save. And so God became man, and that little baby grew up, and he obeyed the law of God that you and I broke, and he obeyed it to perfection. And he went to a cross, and he paid the penalty of our sins because you and I could not pay it. And because without the payment of that penalty, we would be left forever in our guilt under the wrath of Almighty God. But God so loved that he sent his son, that he might pay that penalty for our sins. Why did Christ assume our flesh? As Calvin says, he took our poverty upon him in order to give us riches and our mortality to give us immortality. He descended in order to elevate us to heaven. That's what Christmas is. And God did not have to do this. Could God merely pardon without the incarnation and atonement? Could God merely pardon in some other way? Could he, by divine fiat, simply have said, I pardon? I say it reverently. Now let's be clear, let's affirm with all our might that God was under no obligation to save sinners. But let us also affirm with all our soul that having determined to save sinners... There was no other way but the incarnation of the Son of God who obeyed the law and who paid the price for our sins because God must punish sin. And if we are to be saved, we need a sinless substitute and a righteousness that is perfect imputed to our account, received by faith alone. Now that's the gospel. That's why Christmas. That's why the incarnation of our Lord. And I think it's absolutely amazing. Don't you? I think it's a wonder. The wonder of wonders, actually. Don't you? I think there's nothing greater or grander in all the world than this. Wouldn't you agree? The place of wonder in the Christian life is extremely important. Only God Only God could contrive this. God assumed our nature into personal subsistence with himself. And that, I say, is amazing. And people of God, let's learn not to focus our mind and hearts and affections on the groveling things of this world that pass away. And especially not those those things that would lead us away from the great truths that we, that we preach and believe tonight. Because the higher the mystery contemplated, the greater the changes that will come in us as believers. 
The higher the mysteries that you and I contemplate, the greater will be our growth in grace. The higher the mysteries upon which we set our minds and hearts and affections, the greater we will become more like the one who paid the penalty for our sins and purchased us, purchased us unto himself. You know, theology has as its goal doxology. Children, doxology means praise. The goal, the goal of your life. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's the goal of these things we discuss tonight and these things we discuss from this pulpit and preach and proclaim every Lord's Day. The goal is doxology. And so I'm asking you, when you unwrap those packages or when you get to bed late tonight or when, when Aunt Petunia comes over for dinner tomorrow, will you not forget in the midst of the hustle and the bustle and the busyness and the family, will you not forget to be amazed? Do not forget to be lost in wonder. Do not forget that it's all about this stupendous miracle. The second person of the Trinity came into this world and became a real baby. Augustine, man's maker, was made man that he, ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast, that the bread might hunger, the fountain thirst, the light sleep, the way be tired on its journey, that truth might be accused of false witnesses, the teacher be beaten with whips, the foundation be suspended on wood, that strength might grow weak, that the healer might be wounded, that life, that life might die. Yes, Augustine, that life might die so that we, dead sinners, might live. Merry Christmas, people of God.